We've come to Jesus' fourth statement in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This sermon series, of course, as you know, is called A Happy Life. It is a sermon series for the cynical, for the tired, for the dissatisfied. And if you're just joining us, uh, this, of course, is the fourth of the sermons in this particular series. And if you would like to go back and sort of catch up, you can find all of the previous sermons on our website at tbcphoenix.org. We're building on these same ideas over and over again as we walk through these Beatitudes verse by verse. So there's some repetition, and that's okay. Repetition is good for us. It's necessary. Uh, we've talked about how the word happy is in this sermon series title. And the reason is because the Greek word that begins each of these statements, each of these beatitude statements, historically has been translated into English as happy. Of course, our ESV says blessed, and that's great too. But historically, it was often translated in the past as, as happy. So we could rightly say, happy are those who hunger and thirst. Now, this word happiness, however, is used in a couple of different ways. And so we've talked about this as well, right? We talked about a, a, a thick happiness and a thin happiness. We talked about how a thin happiness is like a lighthearted or emotion, or like a giddiness, a plastic sort of smile. But what we're after is a thicker kind of happiness, a flourishing life, the highest good of humanity, a life lived to the full. That's really what all of humanity is, is after. But because we are Christian, we have a distinct uh, understanding of what that happy life is and what that happy life looks like. And we would also say we have the only correct understanding of what the happy life is. We understand happiness to be knowing the triune God. It's the pursuit of Christ-likeness. And we are definitely not opposed to emotional happiness or to emotional joy. Obviously not. The Beatitudes end with a call for happiness, for, for rejoicing. It's definitely not opposed to emotional joy. But Christian happiness is deeper than that. Sometimes our, our happiness will seem confusing and even counterintuitive. Jesus showed us, he modeled that for us over and over again, that happiness and pain in this fallen world are not always at odds. He said, happy are those who mourn, after all. Well, it seems like a worthwhile goal. Maybe we're, we're going uphill here to try to do this, but it seems like a worthwhile goal to reclaim that older, thicker meaning of happiness as blessedness or as flourishing. Here's why. Uh, that thin happiness is a bit of an idol for us as Americans. I think it's an American value to want other people to think that we're always emotionally happy. Perhaps you've been in a photograph, a family photograph, where everybody's fighting and carrying on, and then the camera goes up and everybody puts on the face, they smile, they take the picture, and when the camera drops, so does the smile. We want people to see us as happy. Whether or not it's actually reflecting reality, we want people to think that of us. And it's not just an American cultural value. It's become a value in evangelicalism. We want people to think that we're hashtag blessed. We are blessed, but not in the sense that the Christian life looks like one long, unending, uninterrupted emotional high, or that it looks like your Instagram feed. This is not the vision of the Christian life that we want to give you. This is not the vision of the Christian life that Jesus calls us to. 
It's almost as if we think it's a sin to be sad. If sorrow is something that we need to feel guilty about feeling. Happiness, rightly defined, is a, is a good goal. It's a good thing. We are designed to seek happiness, and that is a good thing in and of itself. It's actually a vital part of Christian discipleship. But that does not mean that we need to put on a fake smile. We don't need to pretend that we don't live in a fallen world where suffering exists. We want to try to hold these sort of two truths together at one and the same time. We can be honest about our episodes of misery, and we don't have to look like we've been baptized in pickle juice. Those two things can go together. So emotional maturity is more than just a fake smile. And it's a seriousness, it's a sobriety. Both these things can be true. So this is important to keep in mind because our verse this morning speaks of a future satisfaction. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall, that is, they will in the future, be satisfied. So I think I take that to mean that part of our Christian life will be marked by some level of longing that cannot be fulfilled on this earth. But it will be fulfilled one day, Jesus tells us, and that ought to affect how we understand our lives today. Big idea of this sermon on Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, is happiness is the enjoyment of God's eternal righteousness. Happiness is the enjoyment of God's eternal righteousness. As we try to dive in and understand this, this one small verse, we're going to ask three questions. This will be our outline. What is righteousness? How does one desire righteousness? And how is the desire to be satisfied? So what's pretty cool about this particular beatitude is we all get an opportunity, even right now, to put it into practice. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness looks, at least in some small part, like paying careful attention to the preached word. It's an expression of hungering and longing after righteousness. But we can't do it on our own. It's a difficult thing, I know. Let's ask for help. Father, we do pray that you would help us this morning to, to focus on your word. Father, give us your spirit this morning uh, in a sense of uh, conviction where we need to be convicted of areas in which we are not hungering and thirsting after righteousness as we ought. Father, you bring those things to our mind this morning. Help us apply to this uh, to ourselves individually and help us keep from distraction. Father, help us to, to be able to focus even if our flesh is willing uh, our spirits might be weak, so we need your help this morning. Father, we, we want to do all these things for your glory, and for our good, for the good of others. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is righteousness? What is righteousness? Righteousness, obviously, is a very common biblical word. It comes up a lot. Uh, and it's used in sort of a lot of various different ways. Lord willing, we'll be hearing a lot about righteousness as we begin the book of Romans, uh, a study this, this fall as we begin that in September. But at its core, righteousness is concerned with what is justifiable, what is morally right, what is upright, what is virtuous. In the wisdom literature of the Old Testament in particular, 
like the Psalms, like the Proverbs. It also has to do with how we relate to, to others. Uh, so the righteous loves God and loves his neighbor. And that's reflected in the way that they conduct their actions towards God and towards neighbor. We heard about this last week in Psalm 37. Uh, the wicked are not so. They're sort of the opposite of that. They don't love God. They don't love neighbor. And so their actions toward God and neighbor uh, match that. They treat them accordingly. So wickedness, if we can speak in these terms, is sort of like the opposite of righteousness. One commentator defines righteousness here as conformity to God's will. Conformity to God's will. That seems right to me. See if you can track along with this. God's will is made clear to us in his law, which tells us to love God and love our neighbor. So the degree to which we're loving God and loving our neighbor, we are obeying his law, which is the expression of his will for us in our lives. You tracking with that? This seems consistent too, not just with this particular verse, but also the way that Matthew uses righteousness, the way that Jesus uses it in his sermon here, and even in chapter 5. It's used two more times. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being persecuted for righteousness' sake seems to be saying that some people are going to face persecution for trying to conform their lives to God's will, in some sense. Then again, it comes up in verse 20. Jesus says that unless your righteousness, that is your conformity to God's will, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, we know that the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who were most adamant about keeping the law. So if, if righteousness is a, a relational concept, it has to do with how we act towards God and how we uh, act towards neighbor and our love for them. So first, what is righteousness in relation to God? Psalm 11.6 says that the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. Psalm 145.17 says the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Ezra 9.15 says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. Now, of course, we could go on and on with verses like this that clearly spell out for us that God is righteous. Over and over again, the scripture uh, assumes and affirms the righteousness of God. This is who he is. God's nature always leads him to do what is right. All of his ways are just, and righteous and upright is he, according to Deuteronomy 32.4. Someone said that uh, God's righteousness is his holiness in action. I kind of like that. His righteousness is an expression of his nature. And one of the ways that he's revealed his righteous nature and his will to us is in his law. He has given us his law. His law, if actually followed, would lead to a happy life of righteousness. No sin, no wickedness. He gave us his law for our happiness. How does that hit you? The bad news is, I think the reason that that does not settle in with us very well is because since the fall, no one's been able to keep the law. It's not good news, is it? No mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. We consistently break the law of God in, in thought, in deed, 
in word. In other words, we do not share God's perfect righteousness. Right? So if the will of God is expressed to us in his law, and we don't keep his law, we do not share his righteousness in that perfect sense. We are corrupt in our nature. We are unable to keep God's law. No matter how much we try to do good, it simply will never be as good as it needs to be. Never as good as God's perfect standard. Our lack of righteousness separates us from God relationally, and there is no hope of us restoring our own righteousness on our own. There is no hope of that. It does not matter how many virtues you pursue. Uh, It does not matter how fervently you pray. It does not matter if you have perfect attendance on Sunday morning. It doesn't matter if you work for righteousness and justice in the world, in this temporal world. It doesn't matter if you confess a creed. There is nothing that we can do that would earn the righteousness that we need before God. Our only hope of righteousness must come from outside of ourselves, not inside. This is why Martin Luther wrote about how we need an alien righteousness. That is to say, it's a a righteousness that is not ours. It is not my righteousness, it is the righteousness of another. Jesus, because of his divine nature, was able to perfectly obey the law in every righteous way. Jesus was perfectly righteous. And when you put your faith in his righteousness instead of your own, God credits it to your account and declares you to be righteous. So your union with Christ by faith means that his righteousness now is your righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 21 says, Jesus became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So at conversion, for the Christian, at conversion, that very moment, by faith, you've been declared instantly righteous in God's judgment, which in the final analysis is the only judgment that matters. Righteousness righteousness also has to do with how we relate to others, not just how we relate to God. The righteousness that's been granted to us by God, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, frees us up to love others rightly. So the loving reconciliation uh, that God has established between himself and mankind through Christ is really meant to be the model. It's meant to be the fuel of our reconciliation with the rest of humanity. But we're still sinners, are we not? We are still sinners. Unrighteousness still dwells in us. Christians on this side of heaven are, as Martin Luther also helpfully noted, simultaneously righteous and sinful. And that can be really frustrating. This is crucial. We, we hate this fact. We want to be rid of our own unrighteousness. We want to be rid of the unrighteousness that surrounds us. We want to be rid of the unrighteousness that we do towards others. We get frustrated at the injustice that we see in our own hearts, in the world around us. It's that posture, it's that posture of the Christian heart that is so dissatisfied with the present state of this world that Jesus calls a characteristic of happiness. Groaning for the Lord as king to rule and impartially judge the entire earth is a good thing. It is a good desire. 
that holy discontent that we feel, described in very tangible terms by Jesus as hungering and thirsting, is a good thing. So let's meditate on this a little bit more. Second point, how does one hunger and thirst after righteousness? How does one desire righteousness? Food and drink, of course, are basic physical needs. God created us with a need to eat and to drink. He did not need to, but he did. And it happens to come in as a useful illustration for us. Those physical desires, Jesus appears to be saying, are, are a model for our spiritual needs. There's something outside of us when we hunger that we need. There's something outside of us when we thirst that we, that we need. We need the energy that food and drink provides to our physical bodies. And we have appetites, don't we? Our appetites drive us to take the action necessary in order for us to eat and to drink. If we're parched, we will look for water. If we are hungry, we will seek out food. Now, of course, sometimes we do lose our appetites. Certain seasons of emotional distress, physical ailments, certainly that's true. But as a general rule, we have appetites that, that, that guide us towards food and towards drink. It's obviously a problem if we don't have an appetite, because if we need food, but we're not actually hungry enough to do anything about it, we're going to starve. We will never do what it takes to get that food. We would die. So our physical appetites are necessary for our lives, aren't they? When it's functioning correctly, our grumbling stomach has a corresponding cure in the creation that God has given to us. We hunger for food, we take food in, and we are satisfied. But there seems to be an analogy that Jesus is making here to our moral appetites. If we spiritually hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're in a good place, as we've heard Josh say in the first couple sermons in this series. Jesus says that that desire will be satisfied. But I want to think a little bit more about this desire for righteousness. Because we are sinners, our desire for, uh, or for uh, righteousness, our appetites, aren't always healthy. They can be miscalibrated. They can be off. Our appetites don't always work in the way that they're meant to work. We can actually want what is not good for us. Occasionally, I prefer Captain Crunch to kale and quinoa. It might be more satisfying, of course, in the short term, but I know that I actually need something more substantial in the long run. So let's consider some ways that we might desire righteousness, both rightly and wrongly. Desiring righteous rightly and wrongly. So first, desiring righteousness rightly. Desiring righteousness, in a sense, is a desire for freedom from all evil. The happily hungry of this beatitude have an ongoing desire to see God's will accomplished, both in their life and in the lives of those around them in the world. So what does that look like? John Perkins is an evangelical, a bit of a legend in the civil rights movement, not to be confused with our own John Perkins, who is a legend in his own right, no doubt. John Perkins, the evangelical gave four constructive statements to Christians who want to hunger and to thirst after righteousness as it relates to loving our neighbors as ourselves. These are the four things he gives us. I think this is helpful. He says, first, that we have to start with God. If we don't begin with God, 
whatever we're seeking is not actually righteousness. Second, as we're thirsting and hungering for righteousness, be one in Christ. If we give a foothold to tribalism that destroys unity between brothers and sisters, then we're not desiring righteousness. I think he has good ground there. Blessed are the peacemakers. Third, preach the gospel. Uh, Of course, the gospel has to do with the righteousness of God that is imputed to sinners through faith in Christ and his triumph over the fallen world, sin and death. Fourth, teach the truth. Teach the truth. Where there is no truth, he says, there can be no righteousness. God's word is the objective, unchanging standard of that truth. So, whatever righteousness we're pursuing, it needs to be in line with the biblical data, the revelation that he has given to us. Desiring righteousness rightly should always be done in relation to God. This is the Christian view. Who is God? Who are we? What are God's plans for creation? But what about desiring righteousness wrongly? I've got four categories. I'm sure that there are more than these. Maybe you can discuss this over lunch or in your community group later. I've got four ways that I think that we can desire righteousness wrongly. And the first of them is actually seeking unrighteousness. Actually seeking unrighteousness. Do the lusts of our flesh persuade us to seek happiness in them, in our lust, that is, and to lay aside our thoughts of righteousness? We have to take care to cultivate our moral appetite so that we're not drawn away from the desire that we should rightly have towards righteousness. That's where true happiness only can be found. This probably includes being careful about what we feed our souls. We are obviously bombarded uh, constantly with voices and with information. And we may well, if we always are consistently taking in cynical information, we may well have our consciences hardened towards righteousness. A hardened conscience is like a moral appetite that hates healthy nutrients like feeding gizmo after midnight. Our appetite for righteousness might flip upside down to the point where we actually desire wickedness, where we hate what God loves, we love what God hates, we call good evil, we call evil good. Or we might just become complacent in settling for a lesser righteousness. Settling for lesser righteousness. So we can, we can succumb, of course, to a drowsiness, that keeps us from desiring righteousness as, as we ought. So the question is, what enemy comes between you and God when it comes to thirsting after righteousness? Might it be your own distraction? Might it be boredom? Might it be the, the temptation even now to check something really quick on your phone? To make lunch plans? To try and remember the last time that you watched Gremlins? Do you recognize those things as actually being horrible? Those are distractions that you need to fight against. Or are you simply satisfied with being here physically and being mentally elsewhere? I know this temptation well. We can turn God's good gifts, the things of this earth, as a way of distracting 
the fact that we lack righteousness and that the world lacks righteousness. We are dissatisfied with ourselves. We are dissatisfied with others. So we try to either numb that dissatisfaction with vice or we look for satisfaction in things that are good but are not eternally satisfying. Not necessarily bad things, but if they distract you from the best things, then they're not going to eternally satisfy. Here, where the blessed God comes to meet with his people, should be, of all places, where our desire and uh, our hunger and our thirst for righteousness is met. So if you're not hungry, if you're not thirsty here, if you're not actively working to turn your face toward him, I want to suggest that you should be unsettled in that. But there's another way that we might go awry in desiring righteousness. Third, what we might call the kingdom without the king. Part of the human design, as having been created by God, properly drives us towards wanting to see an end to evil. We want to see an end of abuse, uh, an end of human trafficking, an end of war, an end of violence, racism, hatred of all kinds. But we also, don't we, have a competing desire that doesn't want anybody to tell us what to do. We want to decide what is right in our own eyes, don't we? We want that freedom. Like the U2 song says, we want the kingdom, but we don't want God in it. What if some of us aren't actually hungering for righteousness itself so much as the effects of righteousness? You know what I mean by that? We want creation to flourish, but we don't actually want to follow the instructions that would make creation flourish. It's foolishness, it's madness, this is what sin is. We want to make our own rules. Just a helpful reminder that it's foolishness to seek righteousness in a fallen world without reference to the king, who is, of course, the fountain of all righteousness and of goodness. We won't see the virtues of the Beatitudes expressed in the world without the submission to God's good authority in our lives. But that drive for righteousness also can push us towards seeking righteousness in ways that are right in our own eyes and what we might call counterfeit righteousness. A counterfeit righteousness is what we might say is a righteousness that's not actually based in God's revelation. This seems to be a particular danger right now. There are competing visions of righteousness that come from different starting points, a different uh, worldview, if you will, different understandings of who we are, if there is a God or not, and what the ultimate goal of creation is or ought to be. And it differs from what we find in the Bible. There's a way of trying to establish righteousness in the world without reference to conformity to God's will. So instead of seeing us as people that are made in the image of God who have dignity and value and worth across humanity, sinners either found in Adam or in Christ, it evaluates reality fundamentally through a lens of oppressor and oppressed. And to be sure, it is a sin to oppress anyone. But when oppression is redefined, Using unbiblical meaning, we have gone off track. The desire for righteousness, here Jesus, is good. But you can see how it goes crooked, right? Whatever the case, our pursuit of righteousness and justice has to be consistent with the fruit of the Spirit. Desiring righteousness wrongly often brings with it a bitterness uh, that leads us to assume the worst of other people. 
We assume other people's motives. Really, all we're doing is feeding our own self-righteousness, which for the record also is a counterfeit righteousness. If we can't be declared righteous by God in Christ, well, we can kind of declare ourselves righteous compared to others based on what positions we take in social issues. Uh-uh. We must be careful not to feed our hunger and thirst for righteousness outside of the gospel. If you hear nothing else today. Hungering and thirsting drives us to action. We are moved to satisfy those longings. This is good and right. The question then becomes, where do we turn to have those satisfied? Where do we go to uh, quench our thirst? Third, how is the desire satisfied? Here's where our big idea hopefully comes together for us. Happiness is the enjoyment of God's eternal righteousness. Our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is the only proper object of our desire for righteousness. So righteousness has to do with how we love our neighbors. We've spent some time thinking about that. But in the ultimate sense, our desire for righteousness can only be satisfied in God himself. Now I'm going to say something in just a moment, and I need you to hear me carefully. I'm interested to see how you respond to this. It's not groundbreaking or anything. Three words, here it is. God is happy. How's that hit you? Do you want to try to correct it? Qualify it? Does it feel right? Does it feel like it makes sense? Of course, we're speaking about this happiness in a way that we've defined it here. Can we just contemplate the person and the being of God for a minute? Are we in a safe place for that? We've said that in order for humanity to be happy, we have to seek satisfaction outside of ourselves. This is, the way it, this is what it means to be a creature. It's the way it is. We need an alien righteousness for our blessedness, for our happiness. God does not. God is righteousness defined, as we've read from those scriptures earlier this morning. He is absent of evil. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He possesses and he enjoys the fullness of of good. Psalm 16 says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. God is infinite. He is eternally unchangeable and he is all sufficient in himself. That means that God is satisfied in himself. This is called the doctrine of divine blessedness or the blessedness of God. 1 Timothy 1:11 the beginning of 1 Timothy, and also then at the end, in chapter 6, Paul calls God blessed. And it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says that God is blessed or happy in himself. Listen to this quote from the 1600s Puritan named Edward Lee. I've got a quote on the, on the slides for you. God's happiness is that attribute whereby God has all fullness of delight and contentment in himself, needing nothing out of himself to make him happy. So God, in three persons, the blessed Trinity, delights and rejoices in himself more than we could ever know. If we could speak in this way, 
God's hunger and thirst for righteousness is simultaneously and eternally satisfied by his own nature. And because his hap- this is why this matters. I know that sounds like, well, that's esoteric. Here's why this matters for us. If we have any hope for an, an unchanging blessedness or happiness, it needs to exist. It's good news that God himself is our fountain of happiness. Because his happiness is not overcome by anything outside of himself, he is able to be the infinite fountain of our happiness. So our question was, how do we satisfy our desires? Jesus' beatitude here implies that our desire for righteousness will be satisfied with righteousness. And we cannot find unshakable righteousness in this world, can't we? This is why we hunger and thirst for it. So we have to conclude that we'll be satisfied ultimately in God himself and his eternal perfections. We are driven to seek our happiness in God because he alone is truly happy. Rejoicing in God's own happiness is the source of our happiness. Though not always the most trustworthy theologian, C.S. Lewis hits this spot on when he says this quote. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Yes. And that other world is the new heaven and the new earth which we await. It is then that we'll be happy in that place and forever blessed. Jesus' statement seems to imply that we will always hunger and thirst until he returns, until he brings his kingdom back with him. So we will always be dissatisfied in some sense in this fallen world, in this present age. That doesn't mean that we should become complacent. does not mean we're meant to withdraw from society and sort of smirk as it tumbles down. But it does remind us that we will not establish God's kingdom on earth. It is not something that we build. It's something we proclaim. The kingdom will come, and it will be given to us by God when Christ returns. We just want to put the proper emphasis on the not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. But until that day, how can we satisfy our desire for righteousness in God? We have tastes of that kingdom in our lives today. We're going to get to see it in a moment's time as we witness two baptisms. The Christian is already a new creation, in a sense. The baptism that we're going to witness is a sign of that reality. They will both be buried under the water in the likeness of Christ, and then resurrected to walk in newness of life. This is a symbol of the newness of the creature of the Christian. This is what regeneration looks like. It's a, a picture, it's a sign pointing to that reality. We have, right now, the righteousness of Christ. We have the holiness of his spirit. So the degree to which we desire what God desires, we will experience blessed happiness until Christ returns. If we want to be rid of the miseries of the fall, we should try to get as near to God as earth and grace will allow us to do on this side of glory. Repent and believe. Be merciful. Be a peacemaker. Be pure in heart. That is all to say that the path 
of happiness is the path of holiness. Let's pray. Father, we do, we do hunger and thirst for you. When we, we see uh, the fallen creation that is around us, we feel the fallen creation in our hearts, we groan. Even creation itself groans for you to return. But Father, we confess we don't often groan enough. Would you help us to groan for your perfect righteousness? And we thank you for the fact that you have given us your perfect righteousness in Christ. Father, we do gather here to celebrate the fact that you have, you have made us new creation. And we bless you for that. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.